This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture is Psalm 89, which can be found on page 495 in the Pew Bibles around you. Psalm 89. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. And, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off and rejected. 
You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes, and you have made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have made and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. All right. Did y'all get all that? Let me just take you all in. I don't get to come down here very often. It's just fun to see you all. Hey, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Wyatt. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and I oversee all of our care and counseling ministries across both of our congregations. But my family and I spend our Sunday mornings in our Lenexa congregation. So I don't get to be here very often on Sunday mornings. My, my office is here and I get to serve uh, you all, I know, I know some of you really well, uh, but I see a lot of new faces as well, people I haven't met before. Uh, so it's just, uh, just a joy uh, to be here today. Uh, it also happens to be a day where you got this little card as you walked in. So Living Waters is one of our care and counseling ministries. And I think it is probably actually my favorite. Uh, when I encounter people in our church who have been really like radically transformed and have really met God in powerful ways in their lives through like one of the ministries that I oversee, usually it's, it's Living Waters. Yeah. Um, it is like a, like a 20 session semester long group. So it takes quite a bit of commitment and you gather with other people in the church and sit and ask God to meet you in the places where you need him in your relational self, in all the ways that you are made to connect with others, uh, which includes our gender uh, and our sexuality. And the, the powerful component of it is actually sitting and waiting and listening for the Lord to speak to you, because he, he always knows exactly what you need. And so what I love about Living Waters is people come out of it, yes, with some healing or some equipping about uh, kind of how to uh, engage the world with their relational selves. And oftentimes people come out with a keener sense of being able to hear the Lord's voice for themselves. Uh, and that gift kind of pays forward. Uh, it's going to start here in just a few weeks. And it's my understanding that we have a lot of spots open, especially for guys. So I would love every member of Redeemer Fellowship to go through Living Waters at some point. I think, I think it's for everyone. I think the Lord has something for everyone here. So 
guys in this room especially, uh, if you have any interest at all, uh, talk to Matt South and Amanda Smith. Do you all raise your hands? Matt, sorry, I didn't tell you I was going to do this. Matt and Amanda are amazing. Uh, they lead the thing directly with, a, with an army of volunteers who really give of themselves. Uh, as we're going to be talking today, this, this psalm is about how we can trust and look to the love and the faithfulness of God, even when it doesn't really seem like he's showing up. And so if you really resonate with that today, actually checking out this, this Living Waters group might be a great way uh, for you to kind of take some next steps and address that. Uh, before I go any further, let me pray for us. Lord, it is a joy to be here today. And I am keenly aware that everyone in this room, what they need is not more of me, they need more of you. So I ask you to speak. I ask you to speak through me far beyond my own ideas or preparation or experience would allow for. Would you supernaturally speak to us, Lord? especially in the places where we're missing you, where we're looking for you. And it's hard to see your love and your faithfulness at work around us. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. This is kind of a a happy coincidence I get to be here on the Sunday that we hand out the Living Waters thing. I'm also here when we're doing our little micro time of diving into the Psalms. We usually do that during the summer, kind of shift, get into the Psalms a little bit. Uh, So while I really love being here, my confession this morning is I don't really like the Psalms. In fact, I more than half seriously asked if it was okay if I preached something else besides the Psalms. I know that's like not the most uh, spiritual thing to say, but it's, it's real. Uh, and, and I'm wondering if some of y'all are there as well. For me, the Psalms are difficult to engage. There's something about the ancient historical context that makes it feel kind of far away. There's something about the poetic language of it that makes it murky. There's all this kind of symbolism and metaphor. And so it's hard for me to, one, just know, like, what is this thing saying? Step one. Step two, and what does that have to do with me? What about this thing that was written like a thousand years ago? Lord, how do I encounter it today? What do I need from you through it? And how do I, like, put shoe leather to that thing and apply it in my everyday life. I'm assuming, uh, again, that I might not be the only person in that boat, uh, that some of you might feel that way as well. Like you heard this long, kind of strange psalm read, and you're going like, okay, Wyatt, what is, what's this going to be about? It ends with talking about how all really ashamed, and then praise God, and feels really discordant. Um, so uh, what I want to do with y'all today is kind of take you on the journey with me. Uh, I intentionally chose a psalm that was difficult, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, one that had a lot of weird stuff in it, one that was kind of a bummer, quite frankly, uh, to read. Sometimes I go to the psalms, I'm looking for like a cup of hot cocoa uh, on on a cold day, and some of the psalms are just not super warm and fuzzy. And and this one felt that way to me when, when I read it the first time through. So I'm kind of going to grab the bull by the horns, pick a a psalm that is 
uncomfortable and difficult for me because I think actually it would be good for me to do that. And I wondered if I brought y'all along with me on that journey, maybe it would be helpful for some of you as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about what is this psalm actually saying in the first place. And then we'll talk about, okay, and like how do we actually apply that uh, to our own lives? I get to walk with people in the really messy places of their lives. It's actually a a deep joy for me because I I get to help people also encounter the love and the faithfulness of the Lord in that place. And, and, And I wonder, are there places in your life where things are messy or where you don't see God showing up? Like, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's something in your household or in your marriage, maybe lack of marriage, maybe loneliness is creeping in and you're not sure where the Lord is. Something at work, maybe. So, some place where you're looking for God, you know that he's good, but you're not seeing him actually show up. And so if that's you this morning in any way, then, then this psalm is actually for you. You'll hear in this both the mental assent of the psalmist who goes, God, I know that you really are loving and I know that you really are faithful and everything is burning down around me and I can't see evidence of you anywhere. And it collides those two things. So what I'm hoping to do today is to show you how you can lead on God when you're facing difficulty that doesn't seem to end. Because doing this helps us to endure and experience transformation in in the midst of the trial. There's one truth that I'm really hoping I can help you grab onto uh, today. And that is this, that God is still loving and faithful even when you can't see it. And maybe it actually sounds difficult for you, or trite, or like a cute thing uh, that Christians say, and it's hard to grab onto, like, what does that matter? How do I really experience that God is loving and faithful when I can't see him? But my hope is today that y'all can grab onto that a little more and know how to lean onto the Lord in those places. All right, so let's get into the psalm itself. It starts with that little uh, description at the top that says that this is a mascal. It is a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. And there's a lot of debate about specifically what that means and how we should take that. But I think we can sidestep a lot of that. I don't think it matters too much. What really matters and what is plain in the psalm is that the psalm is written after Jerusalem had been uh, destroyed. After Judah had been invaded by Babylon, uh, and it looked like the King David's dynasty, their king line was broken. The king, at best, became sort of like a vassal of Babylon or under the rule of Babylon. The city is largely destroyed. And the psalmist is essentially wrestling with what he understands to be the promises of God. The psalm really carefully builds simultaneously the case for God's love and his faithfulness, the case that God made really specific promises about the dynasty of King David, specifically that it would last forever, and he's looking at the desolation around him, and he's trying to hold all those things together. 
It's, it's a really long psalm, and there's a lot there, so let me try to summarize it for you just like in a nutshell. Essentially what happens, it starts off with, God, I know that you're really loving and faithful. That's really true. I know that you're in charge of everything. You're in charge of everything in the heavens. You're in charge of everything on earth. You promised that King David's dynasty would last forever. Four, and you've broken that promise. You've ended his dynasty. Five, please show up quickly. And six, this is really humiliating and hard. So I want to go through this psalm with you in a little more detail to try to help get your head and your heart into what's happening here. And this is where we'll do the work of understanding what the psalm is actually trying to say. So we'll start into um, the first four verses, which kind of start off with this dilemma. God, you're really loving, you're really faithful, and you made promises. And if we remember that uh, the psalmist is writing at a time when it's really apparent that those promises aren't happening, or at least we can't see them, we immediately start off with the, with the dilemma. We then get into how God is control of everything, starting with the heavens. And I think that the psalmist is starting off this way in order to rule out any other alternate explanation of what has just happened. He's trying to rule out any other kind of causal agent for why all this terrible stuff happened outside of it being his loving and faithful God's choice. So he's going to start ruling out options of alternate explanations. Okay, so starting here in verse five, the text says, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings, that's interesting, is like the Lord? a God so greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. I think this is one of the strangest parts of the psalm, so we'll kind of slow down and stop here. The psalmist is acknowledging two things. Number one, there are other spiritual forces or spiritual powers out there uh, in the universe. And they really like matter and affect what happens. This idea of this council of holy ones or divine beings or spiritual beings, this isn't the only place that shows up in the scripture. It's actually sprinkled all throughout. If you want to flip back just a couple pages to Psalm 82, you you see it pop up uh, really starkly there as well. So I'll just, I'll give you the first few verses of, of Psalm 82. Right at the top at verse one, God has taken his place in the divine council. There's that council language again. In the midst of the God, he holds judgment. The next verse says, uh, God says to them, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So here we have God, the real God, the, the most high God. And he is in a council with other little g gods, other spiritual powers. The book of Job also opens up with a scene like this, and it seems like Satan is there as well, and it looks like he is kind of like a fully functioning member of this council, which is really strange. So what's the point? The point is the idea of this council, 
The idea of all these spiritual beings gathered together. They represent the sum total of all the spiritual power in the universe. This is where all the the decision makers are, all the movers and shakers and all the actors. So number one, we're pointing out, hey, there really are other spiritual beings out there. We have a real enemy. Uh, And the number two thing that he's pointing out here is, and God is far and above, way more powerful, way more important than all of them. They all answer to him. And so as we're looking at uh, the answer of why is this happening, Lord, why was Judah destroyed and why was our king carted off, whatever the reason that this great calamity has befallen Judah and our kingly rule is broken, the answer is not that Satan or the gods of Babylon or any other spiritual power for that matter, like overpowered the God of Israel and he was, he was powerless to stop it. What the psalmist is alluding to here is that if some, spiritu- uh, if some spiritual power had a hand in Judah's current suffering, it was at least permitted, if not ordered, by the Most High God of Israel. And, and I, I've heard this from some of you. I think we all actually wrestle with this. When something really difficult happens in our life, we're coming to grips with, well, wait, isn't God sovereign? And so did God make this happen to me? Or did he, or did he like, let it happen to me? And I mean... Is one really any better than the other? How, how do I see a loving God through what I'm experiencing right now, this calamity that I'm experiencing in my own life? All right, so drop down to verse nine. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So there's, there's some more strangeness here. Uh, we have an arm, we have seas, and we have this figure of Rahab. Arms and hands pop up a lot in the scriptures. They're symbols of like a means of power. So we're talking about power. And the seas and the waters usually refer to like the untamed chaos of the universe. And particularly, this figure Rahab, there is a woman named Rahab in the scriptures. That's not who this is referring to now. Rahab here is a mythical monster that represents the chaotic forces of the universe. And so God is even able to subject these spiritual beings. God is able to subject chaos itself wherever it happens in the universe. And then we go down to verse 11, and this is like affirmed. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all that it's in it, you founded them. The north and the south, you created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. Tabor and Hermon are just two mountains in the north and south. He's reiterating this. He like all of the land, you made it. So not only is God control of the, uh, is the entire unseen world and all of its powers, he's in control of all of the seen world all of the material world, all of creation, and more than that, he made it. And just like God could undo or destroy Egypt's army, he could have done that with the Babylonians, but he didn't. And so whatever the reason for this great calamity is, it's not that people or some force in the material world is outside of God's control either. So this is the psalmist building the case. This is the intensity of the dilemma. He's acknowledging actually his beef is with God. 
because God's in control of everything. His beef is not with the enemy, Satan. His beef isn't really even with his enemy, the Babylonians. It's with God and with God alone because God's in control. And as he goes on to point out, and God made promises. So the next section summarizes really poetically and expounds some of the story and the promises that God gave uh, to and about David and his kingly dynasty. We can go down to the, starting in verse 20 is where this, this picks up. And God promises a few things. One, he promises that he will empower David, give him power. He promised victory over the enemy and victory over the forces of chaos to David and his offspring. God promised David a secure relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he promised to establish David's throne so that it would last forever. The psalmist also recounts that God's promises, uh, that God promises to discipline David's descendants if they don't keep his commandments by punishing their transgressions with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. And he continues for several verses after that, reassuring that God will continue to show his love and his faithfulness and not violate his covenant or lie to David in that way. And then the psalm pivots from reminding God of what he said he will do to telling God what it looks like he actually did. Ethan complains that rather than choosing David's dynasty, making it special and empowering it, it looks like God has rejected him. Rather than strengthening the hand of kingship, God strengthened the hands of the enemies. Rather than granting victory over the enemy, the enemy is won. And rather than God keeping his covenant, Ethan says that God has renounced the covenant in verse 39. And the psalm ends with a series of pleading questions to the Lord, petitioning God to remember first that Ethan's lifespan is short and he's asking for God to show up while he's still alive. And second, wants God to remember how bad the situation is and he wants him to show up. So the psalm ends with the issue unresolved. The situation hasn't changed by the end of the psalm. God is still loving and faithful, and it still looks like he hasn't shown up. All right. So if that's what the psalm says, so what? How do we apply it? What's it have to do with us today? How does it help? I mean, remember, one of my big hang-ups with the psalms is, not really, it's not easy for me. I'm not, I'm not often sure how to apply it. I found this really helpful from Dr. Larry Crabb. Uh, he's a psychologist and a Bible teacher, and he says this about the Psalms in his book, 66 Love Letters. Wouldn't be surprised if this has been shared from this pulpit before. Uh, Crabb writes, speaking from God's perspective, the Psalms are not an anesthetic. They're not a cup of hot chocolate on a cold night. They're the prayers of someone lost in a dark wood shivering in bitter cold, unable to stand in fierce wind. They're the praise that flows from that person's heart when he abandons himself to me for deliverance and when he trusts that my hand has grasped his and that I'm leading him home very slowly but very surely. Job learned that he must die to the hope that darkness and cold and wind were not part of my plan. In the Psalms, I reveal what life is like for the person who lives in the storm with his eyes fixed on me. 
This psalm is about facing difficulty, trial, and discipline from God. It gives us a pattern to follow when we're facing difficulty and it looks like God isn't showing up. And this is where it gets really practical for us today. I think that there are things that we can actually learn here and if we put them into practice, God can use them to help shape us and transform us even as we walk through the difficulty. Okay, so the first practical thing here is to use your mouth. The psalm kicks off with, I'll sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I'll make known your faithfulness. When we're trying to get our heart to catch up to what our head believes, there's something about actually opening up our mouths, actually uh, activating Broca's area of the brain to turn those swirl of emotions and ideas into concrete words. When you're facing difficulty and it looks like God isn't showing up, uh, talk about it and sing about it. Sing the truth to yourself. Pull up a worship song you like on YouTube or something and like sing along to it. Sing truth over yourself to remind you of what's real. Pray. Pray out loud. I think a lot of us in our kind of little pocket of Christianity, when we're alone with God, we tend to pray silently or mentally only. But again, there's something about activating your body and opening up your mouth that seems to make what you're praying like, uh, more real. And I think journaling can do this too. There's something about using your words, even in written form, that can strengthen your faith. And at the risk of sounding like a little too mystical, there does seem to be some special power in words in the scriptures. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. <laughs> and I don't really understand that. So if you come and ask me about that later, this is pretty much all I have to say about it. I'm still trying to figure it out. But it does seem to be a thing uh, in the scripture. There's something powerful about using our words. So the first practical thing is to use your words. Second practical thing is not to mince your words. The psalmist brings all of himself to the Lord. All of the ways that he knows that God is loving and is faithful. All of the ways that he goes, and I know you made promises. And all of the ways that things are burning down around him. And it looks like God isn't showing up. He brings all of it to the Lord. He doesn't hold anything back there. He even goes so far as to say in verse 39, you have revoked the covenant with your servant. You can check it out. It's there in verse 39. It seems a little irreverent or a little out of bounds. And it's hard for us to understand how can he simultaneously say, God's faithful, he made a promise, and then he revoked it. But somehow the psalmist is able to kind of hold all of that together. So bring all of yourself to the Lord. This means bring the parts of yourself that feel presentable, and bring the parts of yourself that don't feel presentable to the Lord. He knows it all anyway. And there's, there's something about in God's economy where he's established for us to actually come to him and actually talk to him about it. He, he likes to be asked for some reason. Uh, and I also like to say that God can only meet you where you're at. If you are pretending or performing as if your heart is in a different place 
than you are actually at, uh, I find it unlikely that the Lord will actually meet you there. He wants to meet us here. He actually loves the real you. And he really wants to meet the real you where you really are. So bring where you're really at to him. He can handle it. I promise. He's big enough. He's the, uh, the, the king of the council of the divine beings. He tames all of chaos. He can handle your grumpiness and your doubts. I promise. So when you're facing difficulty, and it looks like God's show, not showing up, don't mince your words. All right, number three, practical thing. Use your words to remind God of his promises and his character. Examples of this are all over the scriptures, especially in the Psalms. And again, I don't really understand why this is true, but it seems like the Lord wants us and invites us to rehearse to him what is true about him. He wants that. He likes that. He invites that. And you see it all over the scripture. And again, I'm not really sure exactly why this is. My hunch is that the Lord knows that we need the reminder more than he does, right? And so my hunch is it has a lot to do with our, he knows our constant need to be reminded and grounded in who God is, what his promises are, what he has done, and what he, will do, uh, what he will do. So when you're facing difficulty and it looks like God isn't showing up, remind God of his promises and his character. Because, here's the thing, church. God really is love. And God really is faithful, even when we don't see it. And, surprise twist, God did not revoke his covenant. And I know it looked that way to Ethan, and he sung it out, but he was wrong. And Christian, if you are going through difficulty, and it seems like God has cast you off, rejected you, broken your promises, I have really good news for you this morning. You're wrong too. It's good news to be wrong sometimes, right? It's good to be wrong when we believe that God didn't keep his promises. Because the truth is, is that God is a promise-keeping God. He kept his promise to David far more than, uh, than Ethan could ever ask or imagine. There is a son of David on the throne. Hundreds of years later, an angel appears to a young and rather surprised woman. And the angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, fulfillment of the promise. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises in Psalm 89. Let's go back to those promises to David, starting in verse 20. And let's take a look at how Jesus fulfills each of them uniquely. All right, so verse 20. uh, We're going to be talking about the promises made to David and David's offspring 
I have found David my servant. Next part of verse 20. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. Well, Jesus Christ is the anointed one. The titles of Christ and Messiah literally mean anointed one. Verse 21, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm shall also strengthen him. Remember, hands and arms are power. And Jesus was strengthened and established by the full power of God. He healed multitudes of people. He sent multitudes of demons fleeing as he freed people. He multiplied food and bread and fish. He knew people's thoughts. Jesus said that he only did what he saw the Father doing. And as he operated in the power of the Father, there wasn't anything that he couldn't do. Same is true for us, by the way, but that's a different sermon. Verse 22, the enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I'll crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. Satan did not outwit Jesus in the jungle, or in the desert. Jungle, that'd be a different scene, wouldn't it? Jesus emerged victorious from the desert. Jesus emerged victorious from the grave when he defeated sin and death. And one day, he will crush and, just, and strike down all those who hate him. And that includes Satan and all those evil spirits and all humans that are in rebellion to him. Verse 24. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name... His horn shall be exalted. Horn here is a symbol of kind of victorious authority or power to rule. The faithfulness and the love of God were fully on display in the life and ministry of Jesus. He perfectly represented God the Father in his name, and people flocked to him. He was exalted as a result. 25, I'll set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Jesus had power over all the chaos. He had power over the chaos of the seas, and he not only calmed them with a word, he stood on top of them and literally trampled on them. 26, he shall cry to me, you're my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Jesus cried out to his heavenly father regularly in the place of solitude and prayer. 27, and I'll make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning. He's the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And of his kingdom, there'll be no end. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Okay, but what of the promises to punish David's offspring if he turned away from God's law? Well, Jesus perfectly kept God's law, and he walked according to its rules, and he never violated God's statutes. Jesus perfectly kept God's commandments. But we didn't, did we, church? In our rebellion, in our foolishness, we broke his commandments. 
This puts us outside of his covenant and the promises of God. It made us enemies with God, deserving of his wrath. But strangely, even though Jesus, the son of David, didn't deserve it, he took the punishment for our transgressions, for the sins of his enemies. The son of David took the blows and the stripes that were his enemies' uh, just deserts. No one can take his life from him. He's too mighty for that. But he laid it down of his own accord. He suffered and died on a cross and rose again on the third day. He ascended to heaven where he sits on his throne and will rule forever as the king of all kings. And by faith, which is believing loyalty in that king, we can be adopted into his kingdom. When that happens, all of our sins are forgiven. They're pardoned. Everything we have done and will do that is against the rule of our new king will be purged. We have a new hope in his promise to return again for the last battle when he'll put an end to all the evil and the suffering forever. That's King Jesus, the son of David, son of God, the anointed one. Jesus is the ultimate declaration of God's love and faithfulness. Jesus is proof of God's love when it seems like God has abandoned you to difficulty. In Jesus, God is faithful even when you can't see it. So what's a fourth really practical thing you can do when you're facing difficulty and it looks like God isn't showing up? Look at Jesus. Where is God when you are facing difficulty? He's on the cross. He's going to prepare a place for you in his father's house where he'll wipe away every tear from your eyes and death will be no more and neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. The answer for us is the same as the psalmist. Cling to the steadfast love of God. For us, the steadfast, of lo- the steadfast love of God is personified in Jesus Christ in what he has done and what he will do when he returns to make all things new. That's what we celebrate together each week at communion. Because the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The way that we do communion as Redeemer is we Come up when you're ready. Tear off a piece of the bread. Dip it in the cup. Stoneware cup is wine. Glassware is juice. We have a gluten-free station over here on the side. Come whenever you're ready. We'll do a little extended time of kind of prayer and, and meditation here first. But I would ask that if you're not a Christian, if you're believing loyalty is not found in Jesus, then, then don't take this meal with us. Pray instead. Uh, And for all of us, we have prayer ministers here that would love to pray with you about anything. Maybe it has to do with the sermon or maybe it's something else, kind of body, soul, or spirit. All right, well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are love and faithfulness personified. Lord, I ask that wherever we need that truth to be applied in our hearts today, individually, would you highlight that 
for each one of us right now? Where in our heart do we need to look to Jesus and view the love and the faithfulness of God on display? Lord, I ask that you would speak. I ask that you would work and move right now. We thank you. We thank you for all that you have done for us and all that you still promise you will do. In the name of Jesus, amen. Take your time and come up when you're ready.